0: Welcome to Why I Hate Your Podcast. These days, there are a lot of podcasts to choose from. This is another one. I'm Crystal, and each week my brother Sean and I meet up to talk about two podcasts and why we hate them or don't. Join us, and we might help you find your new favorite podcast or save you from wasting time on a podcast you might hate. Week the first podcast we're going to be discussing is 372 pages we'll never get back, which is a podcast that was created by Michael J Nelson and Connor listoca Michael J Nelson was one of the stars of a show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, I think he started in the 90s, although the show originally started with a different host in the 80s, and is also one of the founders of Rifttrax.com, which um, Connor Lestoka is a fellow writer for Rifttracks. And for those of you not familiar with MST3K and Riff Tracks, MST3K was a show, cable access show, that started in the 80s, was picked up by Comedy Central. And the idea was it's a a dude stuck on a spaceship. He was sent up there by mad scientists and is forced to watch terrible movies. And so he built a couple of robots who, along with him, watch the movies and make fun of them. Uh, So it kind of was the birth of the concept of riffing films, really bad films. Um, And so Mike Nelson, after that show ended, uh, started up the website RiffTracks.com, where you can download the audio riff track and then, you know, watch the movie, if you own it or if you're streaming it or whatever, and play the riff audio track along with it. And we get the kind of same experience. And it's him and two of the original cast members from Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, Bill Corbett and Kevin Murphy. Now, Connor Listoka also writes for them. And so Mike Nelson and Connor Listoka founded this podcast where they sort of apply the same concept to books. It's, it's a podcast where it kind of works like a book club, right? They, they come up with a book that they're going to read, generally one that they're pretty sure they're not going to like, um, i.e. a bad badly written book, and they go through... And each week they'll, you know, publish an episode where they're reviewing it, they're making fun of it. They have a couple of recurring segments, Dumb Sentence of the Week, and uh, Fanfic or Real, which we'll talk about in a little more in depth as we get into the review. And, um, you know, they started out with Ready Player One. Now, I've been listening to this podcast since its inception. Um, So I've listened to most, not all of the episodes, but I've listened to most of the episodes. But I think you... Um, just started with this one. You listened to, what, I think, like five episodes?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: All right, and why don't you go ahead and tell me what you thought since you're the newcomer to this series?
1: Uh, I do like the idea. I mean, it's obviously, it comes from uh, <clears throat> it's the same vein of Mystery Science Theater and Rift Track, which Mystery Science Theater I am very familiar with. Uh, they're the entire catalog of the series, whereas Riff Track, I mean, I've seen a couple, but I know it's kind of within the same vein. And you could definitely feel the, <clears throat> the same sort of humor that you would see in a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode or a Rift Traffic episode uh, in their book uh, review. And what I like about it, it, it's more of a book club type setting to where you meet once a week after reading three or four chapters and <clears throat> cover the, uh, what happened in the book. Um, but for them, they come at it from a basis of, OK, we need to tear the book down and make fun of it as opposed to, you know, discussing any merits that may exist. And uh, with that being said, the books they choose are books that are typically considered to be not the best books. And uh, and since I'm new to the podcast, or new to that podcast series, I looked through the library and uh, apparently I must have a good taste in books because out of all those books, there was only one I read, uh, <laughs> uh, Ready Player One. So I decided to listen to that one, which happened to be their very first uh, series, and so uh, it was. It's definitely entertaining, and, I, and even after, uh, even though I'm like probably, probably about halfway through the Ready Player One podcast series, I, I will finish it because I, you know, interested to see where, uh, how they end up with the story as it progresses.
0: Now, I I have listened to a couple. I re-listened to a couple of episodes because I couldn't remember. I know that they sort of have changed a little bit over time. Um, like I know the fan fiction or real segment was added at some point during Ready Player One, but I can't remember at what point. Did you get into an episode with that?
1: Yeah, it was like within episode two, maybe, or even three that they introduced that.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's, that's actually one of my favorite segments because, well, that's one of the things I really like about this podcast. I'm not one that, you know engages a whole lot on social media with the podcast that I listen to, but they have a lot of fan engagement with this one. So like their Patreon supporters um, are kind of a big part of the show now. So with Ready Player One, they started out with the fan fiction or real. They actually found there was, you know, that was a hugely popular book. So they found tons of fan fiction online that they could use. And, you know, the concept is one of the hosts will go and cherry pick some really entertaining fan fiction, as well as some sections of coming in the book just by kind of flipping through and finding stuff. And then the other host generally, it's it's Connor reading them and Mike has to try to guess. And it's sort of turned into a game now where Con, like Mike has a really terrible track record at this. Um, and. But when they started getting into some of the really weird books in futures, because there are some really weird books that they review as they keep going, um, one of my favorites being Trucking Through Time. But um, in those cases, of course, there's no fan fiction. So the fans of, of the podcast in the Patreon supporter group started writing their own fan fiction for, for that segment. So now, for most of them, they'll, every once in a while, I think right now they're doing like Midnight Sun, which is the new Twilight retelling. <laughs> and um, so a lot of the fan fiction they've been able to pull actually from the web. Ironically, one of them was actually a fan fiction written by E.L. James, who's the author of Fifty Shades of Grey, specifically about Twilight. So that was entertaining. But there's just a whole lot of fan engagement because they have that segment. And then they also have the segment. um, What is it called? Oh, it's just the email segment where they'll read like emails and commentary. Oh, and then Dumb Sentence of the Week. They'll also take in fan suggestions for that. So I thought that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and I think they kind of started with the uh – Accepting uh, the fan fiction entries probably within the second episode uh, that they introduced the fan fiction or real section because uh, they had mentioned that uh, they had gotten some people who submitted some rather terrible sentences um, <laughs> and I, I'll be honest like when they were doing it for Ready Player One there was even though I've read the book uh, I. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell which one was fan fiction or which one was the real one. <laughs> yes. And uh, I was disappointed that I usually chose the fan fiction one in my mind before they revealed which one was the real one.
0: <laughs> They've really got some talented fans that have, have submitted some fan fiction. Because like I said, now it's become a, let's see if we can fool Mike every week. And so they really try hard. And sometimes they go a little over the top and that'll be like the the tip off that, okay, you guys are trolling me now. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 really entertaining. And I think, um, you know, it's actually that segment of the podcast is probably my favorite. Like, I do like the recaps where they go through. And, and you know, to your point, I read Ready Player One, you know, unironically, as, as did you, and really enjoyed it. And I didn't even realize how badly written it was until I listened to this podcast and they started really pointing it out. Because, I mean, you read it really fast. It's an easy read. So... You don't really stop to think about it critically, but boy, howdy, it's it's not a well written book at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it looks like for most of their books, a lot of these books are written for the widest audience possible, and they kind of mention that as well in, in uh, Ready Player One. That uh, they you kind of when you when you're writing for the widest possible audience, you have to write for the lowest common denominator. And I, I do feel that there are cases where you can see that in Ready Player One. Uh, even though you may be kind of blinded by the m- m- 80s nostalgia. Um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of the books that they review are kind of in that in that uh, vein, and they kind of come at looking at it at more of a critical standpoint, like this is not what good writers do. Um, and sometimes that may not be the point. I mean, one could argue that Twilight was written for young middle school girls, and yes. they're not going to have the... Uh, literature acuity to read something like you know bleak house by dickens so uh that, that's one of the things that it, it, it does provide fodder to them but i think sometimes that there may need to be context and and it, it maybe it's a fault of mine trying to take what they're saying too seriously as opposed to face value because um, i personally i mean i don't feel like they clearly define that yes we are legitimately critiquing or we're cracking a joke um, right and so sometimes i'm like oh come on that's that's a bad joke because you know for xyz reasons you know from a literature standpoint but it was an easy joke for them to make and uh i, I do see that so I, I, a part of me is a little confused um about what exactly they're trying to accomplish uh, I, I assume it's merely just for the comedic factor um but it almost seems like mike is more on the comedy side um as opposed to his co-host. And uh, I feel that it's confusing to me, uh, like, what, what is their primary goal? Because uh, sometimes they'll just come off like, oh, that was dumb. And they kind of will have almost kind of like a super pretentious Rex Reed take on it. <sighs> uh, but again, it could be just simply like, <clears throat> they're just trying to do whatever's funny.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a good, a good point that they... I think they're relying very heavily on the fact that they they when they launched this podcast, they launched it basically to their Rift Tracks audience, right? Like that's how I knew about it because I'm I have tons I've bought tons of Rift Tracks and I, you know, follow them on social media, so I know when they have new stuff being released. Um, so I knew about this podcast through that connection. I think that's really how almost probably 90% of the people that listen have found it. So they're probably relying on that a little too heavily. So if somebody comes in cold, who isn't thinking of, oh, this is like Rift tracks or MST3K for books, then I think they'll have the same experience you're talking about because they are very, they can get really nitpicky. And um, I do think occasionally they'll acknowledge, like for sure they've they've been doing it on Midnight Sun, where they'll acknowledge that, well, clearly this, we are not the audience for this book, you know, (laughs) like they said it several times. Um, So I think they do... They, I think they get a little better about that as they go forward. Plus, they start getting into some really obscure stuff. Um, there are a couple of books that I didn't follow along with them. I skipped those episodes because I fell behind at one point. But yeah, I think they tend to... It becomes It's, it's almost like Riff Tracks or MST3K. Because honestly, the best episodes of MST3K and the best Riff Tracks are always ones that are about really bad movies, right? Like... They have riff tracks for really good movies, um, like you can download, you know, riff tracks for I think Jaws and you know just classic movies, and they're fun, but they're nowhere near as entertaining as like Birdemic or you know these terrible terrible movies that are their specialty. So I think with the books, it's sort of the same. Like the ones, the episodes that really shine are when they're reviewing like really terrible books. And while Ready Player One isn't great in terms of how it's written. It's still an entertaining story. Um, but you get into stuff like like Trucking Through Time or Shadow Moon, I, I can't recommend the series on Shadow Moon because it's, that book is brutally long and awful. I didn't even read it with them, but just listening to it was like, my god, this book is so bad. Um, but that's the ones where they tend to really shine, I think, in this podcast is, is a little better and more fun to listen to from a comedic perspective.
1: Right. And I think uh, that's kind of like their, the whole calibrate your taste segment uh, kind of gives you an idea of where they're coming from. And it's obvious like Ready Player One was not a book written for them. I mean, they're kind of they're beyond the age because it's almost like they take everything literally like everyone talks about Ready Player One's about 80s nostalgia, in which that that is a very fun part of the book. And it kind of distracts from just like how poorly written it is or <clears throat> how... Uh, accessible the the writing is, I guess, is probably a more PC term. Um, it's obvious they they think it's supposed to be only '80s reference references, right? But you have references from the late '70s all the way up through you know the mid '90s or even the early 2000s, and it's kind of more like your your millennial culture or your Gen X culture uh, things that they would enjoy. So you know, people who enjoy the Atari, you know, the Nintendo and uh back to the future indiana jones the goonies you know they they enjoy things like firefly when they're adults so and that's one of the things they brought up they were like why is firefly in this it's not 80s and i'm like well it's i don't know if actually Ernest client ever said oh this is about 80s nostalgia only that just seems to be what everyone talked about because it's predominantly most of it but um and i think as someone within that age range because i uh, they're probably both i don't know a good 15 20 years older than us mm. so uh, they're kind of outside they're they're, they're boomers right that's yeah. and they're kind of outside of that area and whereas i think something like 50 shades of gray would be much m- much more fitting of a riff track setting because that's not written for middle school kids that's written for you know young adults and we're talking people who are you know 18 20 24 you know it's probably 18 to well at least probably even women in their 40s really enjoy those books and but it's written for somebody who's like in the 12th grade right which is kind of inexcusable whereas and i guess you could make the same argument for ready player one which is that it's written for people who lived through the 80s you know who lived through the 90s and they're adults now and they want to have this nostalgia but it's written for somebody who's like 12 or 13 so maybe i just kind of counteract or contradicted myself that maybe right Player one is a fitting book for them to critique.
0: <laughs> well, and I will actually point out that Mike is um I think he's like right at the tail end. Like he's literally in the last year, the cutoff of Boomer to Gen X. So he's like super early Gen X. But Connor's actually 39 years old. So he's actually our age. Oh okay. So he's he's really the sweet spot for this, at least the nostalgia piece of this. But I think it's clear that um his background still isn't quite i don't think he was like a nerd in the 80s i think this book was really written for like late gen x early millennials who had some portion of their childhood in the 80s and 90s um you know childhood slash young adulthood so basically like our age you know born in the late 70s um it's clearly designed to to hit that sweet spot um which, yeah. I mean, is pretty smart from a just a marketing perspective, if you want to sell your book, right? Like, nostalgia for that era is really popular right now. But um, but yeah, I think yeah. I, th- <laughs> I think that uh, it, it clearly didn't really work for either of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that kind of goes to, that kind of speaks to the humor and riff tracks and MSC3K as a whole, that... <clears throat> these people watch terrible movies and a lot of these movies were made in like in the fifties and sixties and seventies and, and the eighties. Uh, so if you go back to the MST three K catalog that, you know, those 30 years probably account for 90% of the movies that, uh, that they would use on MST three K and these guys, so these guys are like steeped really in old movie lore and terrible movie lore and obscure movie lore. And, and this was an issue I've always had with MST3K, uh, and it probably exists in Rift Track. Like I said, I haven't seen too many episodes of Reftrack. Track. Uh, and I kind of feel it here also with this is that a lot of the subjects of jokes are extremely obscure, right? Uh, and so and with, with that, a lot of those jokes don't really necessarily land because nobody knows who you're talking about, right? If They're cracking some sort of joke. Um and that's just a tendency, I guess, the fact that they have such a repertoire of movie experience that they don't realize that maybe not everybody else has that. And a lot of their, uh, uh references that they use for their own jokes are pretty obscure.
0: Yeah, I do think that's, that's, that's a flaw or a, not, maybe a flaw, but it, it definitely can impact the listening experience similar to MST3K. I do, I do know that we watched so much MST3K growing up that, um, you know, as I've gotten older and I've started watching sort of older movies and more classics and things like that, I've picked up on some references that I'm like, oh, I remember that from an MST3K episode. Now I get the joke. Um, but the nice thing I will say is that sometimes, because Connor's so much younger than Mike, sometimes he will ask the question. So Mike will make a reference in a joke like, oh, he's not exactly so-and-so or something and laugh or chuckle. And Connor will be like, well, in case we don't have any listeners who know who that is, why don't you tell us who that is, you know? And, um, so there have been some instances of that, I think where he's like, I, I don't know that reference either. Um, so I think that helps a little bit, but you're right. Like it's very clear that. And even between the two of them, Mike's Mike, especially has that, you know, that wide range of older films and, and, and clearly his tastes based on the calibrate your taste segment, I think are definitely more towards, um, stuff that isn't made just purely for entertainment value
1: right and i feel that this podcast in general if if it wasn't wrapped in the in a cloak of comedy it would come off as extremely pretentious and uh which which i don't mind i think the comedy saves that and and, and i think michael or mike is especially good at uh is if you like norm mcdonald humor he has a very similar kind of dry sarcasm uh, humor uh, and I think it's kind of more of the character like he dreads reading these books you know where his co-host seems a little bit more excited to read these books uh, or at least more engaged Michael's just like why am I doing this you know why am I doing this to myself so he has this kind of blase attitude towards it yes and I think that's just part of the the, the comedy of it but uh, I mean he, his timing and his delivery is always very good um, and like I said if you like dry sarcastic humor even though some of the jokes may be obscure um he is legitimately funny though.
0: Yes. Yes, and I think um what's what's entertaining to me is when they get into books that are cuz they actually take a lot of delight in sort of innocently badly written books um which they've done a couple of and you know, in, in Ready Player 1 it's clear like to to your point, you know, Mike has this A it's not for him and B while there's bad writing, it's just not. He's not enjoying it. Like he's not getting any real entertainment value out of it. Whereas when they do something like, um, well, like Trucking Through Time, or I think even the Mister, they actually enjoyed because it was so ridiculously bad. Um, they they actually they're enjoying themselves, right? Like they can still enjoy the reading experience, even though it's awful. It's like delightfully awful. They, they really like that stuff, which is sort of like their taste in movies for riff tracks, like where they really have fun is the stuff that, you know, the film was made earnestly, even though it's horrific, like The Room or Birdemic, right? Like you can tell all <laughs> the was, actors. About to bring up The Room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, and, and Mike mentions, I think, Tommy Wiseau multiple times because, you know, even though that's such a bad movie, it's like it was earnestly made and that just makes it hilarious, right? So, yeah. I think they, you know, the jokes about, cause I, and I keep mentioning it because it's my favorite book in the series, but Trucking Through Time, the author is like this, you know, retired truck driver. And he's a big, like his profile, he's a big fan of whatever local football team he has. I don't know. And, um, and he's an older guy, right, when he wrote this. And so the running joke through the series is, Grandpa, no, because there's these, you know, really suggestive scenes or really in bad taste scenes and, and so they really you can tell on those types of books they really shine because not only are they having fun with the book itself but they're actually enjoying it because it's just that bad and um, uh, there's another one and I can't remember the name of it but it involves a character who's basically like a, a, a male version of a Mary Sue and he's like a school teacher who gets asked to go to space right And um, <laughs> and it's It's one of those books that was like self-published on Amazon or something. But it's it's awesome because it's just so bad. So I definitely think if you enjoy, if you if you are a fan of either Rift Tracks or Mystery Science Theater 3000 or just that kind of comedy, you're really going to enjoy this podcast. And, you know, there'll be ups and downs depending on the material they're reviewing. Um, And you don't have to you really don't have to read along like that was one of the takeaways for me was because at first I felt like you had to. And so that's one of the reasons I skipped a few, like the, I think it was, I skipped Armada cause I haven't read that one. Um, and then I picked back up when they started reviewing, I think the Mr. Cause I was like, well, that's going to be so basic. I'll be able to follow it even if I don't read it. And for those who don't know, the Mr. is a follow-up to the follow-up book by the author of 50 Shades of Grey series. Um, it's not related to 50 Shades of Grey, but it's, it's really awful. It's I have not read that series, but I, would, I can tell you the mistress belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um but yeah, so I think if you enjoy any of those, and if you don't know Rift Tracks, I highly recommend checking it out. If you do enjoy it end up trying this podcast and you really like it, like I think you're gonna find Rift Tracks and, and MST3K are gonna be right up your alley. Um I did think it was kind of hilarious when they were reviewing Ready Player One that they mentioned that they like Mike was a little bit worried that there might be a reference to MST3K, <laughs> which I'm honestly surprised there's not. Like it is a very popular no. thing among nerds. So
1: <laughs> I, I would assume that Ernest Klein is a fan of MST3K. And uh, I would assume that he knows that this podcast exists. And it makes me wonder what his take would be on it. I know
0: it's like, would you be proud of the fact? I mean, they definitely did a riff tracks on the movie Ready Player One. Um, and I, I think I've watched that. I might be conflating it with this, the series and the podcast. But, uh, but yeah, I think they've done a riff on. I'm, I'm confident they've done a riff on Ready Player One, the movie too. So yeah, this, it's probably a good chance he's aware of it. That would be, that would be funny to see if he was either offended or if he actually like enjoyed it. You know, kind of embraced it the way Tommy Wiseau did.
1: Right, right. And, and you know, one of the things about you know, and you had mentioned it earlier how because. Yeah, Ready Player One, the movie was a Spielberg movie, and uh, <clears throat> you know you were talking about Jaws, that there's riff tracks for that and whatnot. And I think for the movies that are like legitimately good, that they do do riff tracks for, it, it feels like they're forced to find something to joke about. Um, yep. Which, and I think that, and I've noticed that a little bit in uh, Ready Player One, is that they feel like they're forced to have to be, uh, or they're forced to make fun of it. In certain sections, and so I think they get a little nitpicky on certain things. Uh, but again, it's all in the you know, it's all for the sake of comedy. So you know, that's one of the things to keep in mind is that if if you happen to really enjoy, which it, it, and don't get me wrong, I, I, Ready Player One is not a well-written book, but it was it was still enjoyable. Um, just simply because if you're a geek, you're gonna like it. But if any of those books like uh, that they do that you legitimately like you know, just realize that their whole point of view is we are supposed to make fun of this book and we're going to find every instance that we can to do that.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good point. I hadn't really thought about it, but I think that's a key to when to why some of the books are much more enjoyable to listen to the to the podcasts about, because while I enjoyed the Ready Player One series a lot, you're right, it's much, much more nitpicky than when you get into something that's just truly awfully bad. Um they did a, a run on it was a a book written by um a guy who wrote Dracula. I can't remember. Bram his name. Stoker? Yes, Bram Stoker. And it's called The White Worm. And there's a reason you've never heard of it. It is horrifically bad. Like, I don't know how somebody who wrote a book that that's that is so like celebrated and lo- beloved and considered a classic wrote something this garbage, but he did. Um So that one was really enjoyable because, you know, it's just it's so over the top bad. They're not Nick. They don't have to nitpick because the story itself is just dumb. And and so that's I think where they really shine is on those those truly bad
1: books. Yeah. And and I think also like I actually wouldn't mind if they did like a Lord of the Rings uh, version of the podcast series. And the reason why I say that, because I am a super ultra Tolkien nerd um and are revered as some of the greatest works of uh of fantasy writing or just fiction in general uh but i do know that those books are not written for a modern audience mm-hmm. they're not easy to read uh in a modern setting so sure when the books came out it's a different story but uh these books the characters are fairly one-dimensional with the exception of a handful of them and um you know, where those books shine is in the world building and whatnot. But it'd be interesting to see their take simply because of the fact that these books are kind of old and archaic in a way. And uh, it, <laughs> they're definitely not written for the modern audience.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting. I, they haven't really flirted with anything that kind of widely. Be, I mean, Ready Player One's very popular, obviously, as well as Midnight Sun. Um, but they haven't really flirted with anything kind of that widely recognized as, as a classic. Although to your point, there's definitely flaws. There's things they could nitpick on and have fun with. So, um, I am technically a a very low level Patreon supporter of theirs. So maybe I'll suggest that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, like Harry Potter, I could, I love the Harry Potter series, but I can nitpick it to death because it's while the story's good and rolling is, uh, very good at world build. Well, let me rephrase that. Uh, she's built a compelling story, but I have major issues with her world building. And uh, but that doesn't mean I don't like the books or I don't love the books.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's it's funny you say that because I actually was just re- recently rereading them. And because um, I hadn't in a long, long time. And I've listened to the really excellent audiobook version of those, which was uh, the one by Jim Dale. And you know, I hadn't read the books since I originally read them. So, and going back through, I was like, I mean, obviously the first few books are clearly written for children. And I think one of her geniuses is the way she changes that throughout the series as, as the readers grow up along with the books, but you know, they're not, they're not perfect. There's definitely flaws. There's definitely things you could, you could point out. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's room for them to dip into stuff that's, you know, beloved or incredibly popular or, um, and i think that's where i think that's where initially they kind of started i think that was their intent because they of course started with the two klein books um, but you know i think it's obviously much easier to to find some self-published crap on amazon and and go with that yeah. um, there is
1: a plethora of self-published books on amazon that are yes. complete garbage yes
0: exactly <laughs> and and what's what i also love about this because it's super charming is they have a pretty decent sized following now And so, you know, suddenly some writer of some crap book on Amazon is going to get a bunch of revenue because a lot of the fans do read along. (laughs) And so, like the guy who wrote Trucking Through Time, like, why all of a sudden did he, you know, he's like, one day there's 85 purchases of his book or whatever. You know, he had to be like, what's going on? So I kind of love, I get a kick out of that, like thinking these authors who have probably sold maybe five of their books, you know, suddenly get this huge spike in sales, Um, not knowing why, but.
1: There, there, there's one book that kind of became a, uh, a low-level meme on the internet. Now, I'd have to find the title of it, but it's a guy who says he spent his whole life writing this book. And it's a very big book, from what I understand. Uh, but it's written very terribly, and the art cover looks like it was done by, like, a five-year-old. <laughs> and people who legitimately buy the book and read it, uh, review it on Amazon, and he fights tooth and nail about any tiny critique. Oh, gosh. And it, literally, there's... Hundreds of pages on the Amazon reviews of him just arguing with all the reviewers uh, and so I'll have to get the name of the book I don't remember it's like Princess Consuela or something is the name of the book. Oh, uh, I'll have to find it and uh, maybe that's something you can suggest to him because it's apparently hot garbage and, uh, and the author is very meme worthy in of himself
0: Oh, I love it. These are the reasons I love the Internet, the, the fact that, you know, now it's just a thing to go and leave a terrible review for this guy. That's a great idea. They do actually it's one thing I didn't call out in the profile of it, but they do um, occasionally do kind of dips into reviews. One of my favorite things that they did, they've only done it a couple of times, I think, but they'll find the five star reviews for books um, for these books, these really bad books. And they'll go and check that person's other reviews of other products on Amazon. And then they'll do like a quiz like, okay, here's, you know, this, this, this lady rated, you know, the Mr. Five Stars. What did she think of a five pack of ice cube trays? You know, and then <laughs> the other host will have to guess, you know, what they rated that item. And that's usually highly entertaining. So I think they could probably have a lot of fun with that book.
1: By the way, the name of the book is Empress uh, Teresa
0: empress Teresa. okay yes.
1: so i would highly recommend you suggest that to them because okay it, it's something else
0: okay i'm gonna have to do that then you ready to uh give this one uh, a verdict
1: yeah yeah i uh personally I, I don't hate it uh i think it's a great podcast and if you're a fan of that you know msc3k and Rift tracks you'll be right at home with this
0: yeah, and I've obviously shown my hand here by confessing that I'm a low-level Patreon supporter for them, but I obviously definitely don't hate it either. Um, it's uh, it's entertaining. And what's great is because it is kind of a series, um, you know, where there's, you could you could stand alone listen to just the episodes about Ready Player One, or you could, you know, I, I'd recommend if you're going to jump into this podcast, start with the first episode of a book, you know, whether it's, you know, that one or Shadow Moon, which, you know, that wouldn't be the one I'd recommend first, um, or Midnight Sun or whatever, especially if I will say the series on Midnight Sun has been highly entertaining. Um, if you are a fan of riff tracks, you know, that probably one of their best series of riffs riff tracks has been the twilight series. It is the only way to make those movies watchable. And it's pro it's some of their best work. So Having riffed those movies, they're also very familiar with the, the Twilight, at least the the story. You know, I don't think they've read the books, but um, um, so watching them realize with growing horror that this 700 page book is only a retelling of the first movie. <laughs> like they got like a, a third of the way into it. And they're like, I think this just covers the first movie. How can that be? Because <laughs> it's so long um, is is super entertaining. And obviously, You don't really have to read the book on that one either um, to know the story because it's a real basic story. So definitely recommend. uh, I don't hate it, and I will continue listening for sure.
1: So for our second podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about Timcast IRL. Uh, It's a kind of a webcast slash podcast series from the independent journalist uh, Tim Poole. Uh, He's got numerous YouTube channels and he uploads like a crazy person multiple videos a day. <laughs> I don't think he actually sleeps but uh, and he mostly centers around news and politics uh, so what we're going to be covering specifically is his live stream uh, of him discussing his thoughts on the news of the day and he has uh, co-hosts on there to sometimes he has rotating co-hosts um, and uh, he discusses usually the uh, daily political news and the guests that he has usually come from different backgrounds. A lot of them may be, you know, people who used to be Democrats or not Democrats anymore or Republicans or people who still are Democrats. And so I feel like it's a wide range of guests that he will have. And, uh, and if you do listen just on YouTube, uh, he does have a whole Super Chat section, uh, which some people may find, you know, interesting or not. But I believe on the podcast version that you get from your regular podcast uh, does not include that, uh, which I think that's how you consume it. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah, I listen to it as through my uh, through the app I use for for listening to podcasts on my phone. So I I, I have just for the purposes of you know consuming this, as I think it's probably intended. I did check it out a little bit on YouTube, but most of the episodes I've listened to have been as a podcast feed.
1: Right, and Tim, he's um, he, he, what he does is that he will have his life broadcast and then. He has like, his uh, videos that he'll create, uh, which I don't know if those are published out to podcast platforms or not, but they're usually 10 to 15 or 20 minute videos of various news articles and topics that he wants to discuss, and he will also break up his podcast into segments, so, uh, which is handy because if you don't want to listen to the full thing, you can at least go on YouTube and see, uh, oh, they talked about this specific topic for 20 minutes. I just want to listen to that piece. So there is an option to kind of take it in piecemeal as opposed to listening to the whole uh, podcast. Um, And Tim is a very interesting guy. Uh, He's he's very young. I I think he's not even thirty yet. I think he's in his late twenties. And he's come from a very troubled background. He's a mixed race. I think his mother is Korean. And uh, you know he's been homeless. He never graduated high school. Uh, And after the Occupy Wall Street movement, that's when he got kind of some fame and he started working for various uh, outlets. I think he worked for Vox at one point, um, but eventually he decided to break off and be his own independent journalist, uh, which was where his YouTube career kind of kicked off. So, any thoughts on your... uh, Now, me, I'm very familiar with Tim's work. Uh, I I definitely don't think he has, like, a perfect uh, track record, but... um, From your little bit of exposure to him, uh, I'm I'm sure you've watched a couple episodes. Uh, What's your take on him so far?
0: Well, so I actually had heard of him before I started listening. So I just for context, I don't listen to a lot of political news slash current event types of podcasts or shows. Um, So... This is this is branching out of my normal comfort zone for podcasts because I typically listen to them for more entertainment value or education. But I have heard of him because I I listened I heard him on he I think he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of times, um, and I vaguely remember I don't know how I knew this but I vaguely remembered that he did something where he went to. I'm probably going to butcher this. Was it? I don't know if he went to Sweden. He went to some... Yeah, it,
1: it was Sweden. That, that was another big exposure point for him. He went to yeah. cover the no-go zones in Sweden.
0: Yes, yes. I do remember seeing some clips of him talking about that somewhere. I don't know where. Um, probably on YouTube. But um, so, yeah. So I was aware of him as an independent journalist. Um, and... You know, he one thing you can say about him is he makes it very clear where he stands politically when you listen to the show um, virtually on every episode at some point, which is probably good. I mean, if you're coming in cold, I think it's important to know where someone's, you know, if you're listening to a show about politics and news to know where your hosts politics lie, because that's, you know, today in today's world, everybody's got a bias and it helps for context to know what that bias is. And he's kind of a center left, you know person who's who's clearly a bit disenfranchised from the Democratic Party and where it's gone uh, or the I should say the yeah, I guess the Democratic Party is where his frustration would be. Um, But uh, but yeah, so I I I appreciate that he's very clear about that. Um, He's also you can very much tell that he has been burned many times by having something he says taken out of context and or fact checked because it feels like every other thing he claims or says on the podcast or the live stream, he says, well, fact check me on this, or, you know, don't quote me on this, or, like, he says that a lot <laughs> to the point where it's and, noticeable. It
1: it, it could be for very minor things, too. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> like,
1: fact check me. I think he was wearing red coat, but don't quote me on that. Fact check me.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, um, and, and he has a delivery style that reminds me a lot of, like, Ben Shapiro. He's he's young, fast talking, um, you know, that, that kind of, I don't know, maybe that's like a, a breed of young journalists slash, poli- slash political commentators nowadays where they just talk really fast and, um, you know, they're very coherent, but uh, it kind of sounds like sometimes it could get a little, I don't want to say overwhelming, but if you're listening to it while you're doing something else and you get distracted, it starts to just sound like this noise in your ear. <laughs> so I found that this is not a podcast I listen to, I want to listen to while I'm doing something else uh, because it'll get annoying really fast.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely a fast talker and that's kind of a meme around the internets uh, that he's uh, a super fast talker. And there's actually some very funny uh, parody videos and cartoons that he's actually done guest voiceover work for <laughs> that makes fun of the fact of his, uh, his very fast speech pattern. Um, so he's able to poke fun of himself, which is good. I mean, he He realizes he is kind of a meme and his uh, iconic beanie is uh, (laughs) it's people don't know. He's actually completely bald like he's lost all of his hair. And, oh, uh, really? That's why I think he, yeah, that's why he wears the beanie all the time. And I'll never forget one time he was at the White House. There was a bunch of uh, independent journalists uh, who are popular on social media that were invited to the White House. He was there, and you could just see in the crowd one guy wearing a beanie. <laughs> so you knew that was Tim <laughs> Pool. But he said that the benefit of that is that he's not, when he takes off, he doesn't get recognized in public, which he says that's, that's actually a really nice thing. So I guess there's that because it's kind of become his kind of his persona now is wearing the beanie.
0: I did pick up on that pretty quickly that that was like a thing. Um, and I don't remember why there was a couple of comments that were made or, or something where, you know, I, I, I realized that that's sort of like a signature look for him. I did not know he was bald. So <laughs> for a young guy, that's, uh, that's kind of funny that, but you know, I just assumed it was a holdover from his skater boy, you know, occupy days, you know, just hanging on to the nineties a little bit, but, um, Not even 90s, early 2000s. But yeah, so he's, uh, I mean, he's an interesting character. I think he makes for a good podcast host in that respect. I do think I was fairly impressed with, I mean, he seems to have a lot of guests on, at least, again, I'm just basing this on, I've listened to maybe the last two weeks or so worth of his episodes, so maybe like 10 episodes total. Um, And generally, it seems like he has hosts or uh, guests on that are very, not exactly politically aligned with him, but similar. But he did have, I did notice when he had a guest on that was, you know, had a lot of differing views from him that they had a really, it didn't get, it didn't turn into what I hate about all other political shows where they start just, you know, trying to talk over each other and, um, you know, get heated or anything. They were able to have, you know, to debate points um, intelligently without turning it into, a, you know, listen to me, Um, shouting match. So I did appreciate that because that's one of the things I can't stand about, well, most news today anyway, but a lot of these, you know, so-called political podcasts where it's just a lot of people yelling at each other. Um, So I thought that was really good. Um, You know, he's clearly right now, it feels like, and I don't know if this is true because I know he talks a lot about where he, where he is politically, you know, which again, I said is kind of center left, Um, but he is so frustrated with the Democratic Party and how they've shifted from their values. You know, like he's a big anti-war guy and obviously he's a big Occupy guy. So he has a lot of kind of liberal views on on those things. But he's really kind of irritated with the Democratic Party, not, you know, not like caring about some of those things anymore, presumably, um, so right now it feels kind of like a slightly right wing type of podcast or maybe very right wing type of podcast because they're very tied up in talking about the election and you know, the fact that they're voting. For, he's voting for Trump and um, and the things that he likes that Trump's done. So I think somebody going into this who's supremely left wing or somebody who's not or who you know hates Trump is probably not going to enjoy this podcast very much. Um, but for me, I thought it was, you know, It's pretty good. I, I, some of his mannerisms, like I said, get a little on my nerves. He's very kind of dude and bro. And again, I'm significantly older than him. So it might just be me like just being annoyed by a guy who talks like he's in his early 20s. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and he's also, he also comes across a little bit. What's the word? Not, Not pretentious, but um because like I said when he has guests on he's not like I'm your I'm right you're wrong all the time but when he's voicing his opinion it comes across that way a lot you know like he's very kind of smug um at least that's the what I got out of it um my impression of it but I will say you know he does spend a lot of time engaging with fans they have the whole super chat section at the end of the show where you know for those that don't know on YouTube if you if you're if you're watching a live stream you can pay to have your chat ele- your your comment elevated to a super chat which then the host can see and so he'll spend a good portion of the show each time you know each day going through and reading the super chats and and commenting on them and stuff and you know sometimes it's people disagreeing with him or disagreeing with the guest and he you know doesn't get upset about that you know he listen, he reads it off and says oh it's you know your perspective that's kind of cool so um, overall, I mean, he feels pretty balanced, but uh, again, this this isn't really my kind of podcast, so I had to really come at it with an open mind and try not to get irritated <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it, it, you know one thing you touched on is that you know his guests are for the most part they are right leaning, and I think that's because he can't get anybody from the left to actually join his podcast because uh, <laughs> He's not a fan of you know the Biden ticket. He's not a fan of Kamala Harris. I mean, he's he's a diehard Tulsi and Bernie guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet, yeah, for some reason, he still gets labeled as some kind of heretical conservative. And so that that's the problem is like the, the, his pool of guests to pull from is very very small. Uh, but what one thing that's interesting that I really appreciate appreciate about Tim Pool is that he has unlike a lot of political commentators on YouTube. Uh, they don't get very much, what's the word I'm looking for? There's not a lot of favorability from YouTube uh, on that type of content. And I would say that YouTube is fairly antagonistic against it in general. But he seems to have connections and insight to uh, people at YouTube and at Twitter and uh, not so much Facebook, it's really just kind of Twitter and uh, YouTube uh, where he's able to get away with things I think a lot more uh, than some other people who may do political stuff on YouTube uh, who or who speak politically on uh, Twitter do uh, for some reason he ha- he's able to build those kind of connections uh, which you know in, in, one of his probably most famous uh, episode on Joe Rogan was with uh, CEO of Twitter Jack Dorsey Jack Dorsey uh, yeah to, to confront Dorsey on a lot of the hypocrisy uh, that Twitter has. And it's a fantastic podcast because tim is very well educated on you know how social media youtube and all this stuff works and how their rules and regulations are very unevenly uh, unevenly applied to people and so he's very much in the know with that and i i part of me thinks he actually has regular discussions with upper you know i don't know if it's executive level but there's definitely some higher level employees i think at youtube that he has contacts with because there's some things he says here and there that kind of leads me to believe that and so that gives him a lot more insight i think into the whole social media ecosphere uh, especially when it comes to politics and current affairs that a lot of other people do not have and he does play that up a lot because uh and again it's something that becomes kind of tiring because there's certain words you can't say on youtube or you get demonetized or there's certain things you can't cover you get demonetized and so you can tell he's very frustrated by that and he tries to work around it and uh, sometimes that can get kind of annoying but that's just him kind of trying to play the game though uh but I, i i think that's where ultimately i look for tim pool is his coverage on uh kind of the inner workings of how social media is working, because uh, I feel like he has kind of a pulse on that.
0: Yeah, that was actually, I think, what, you know, when you listed this podcast as, as a, you know, candidate for us to talk about, um, one of the reasons I, I gravitated towards it first was because... I had I had seen him on Joe Rogan, that specific episode you're talking about with Jack Dorsey. And I thought, you know, he came across incredibly well prepared, incredibly intelligent, very, like you said, educated on the topic, um, which I think it made the it made the episode very, very um, interesting. And obviously, uh, you know, it sound it made Jack Dorsey not look so great because I don't think he and um, the the other guests that they had on from Twitter. were very prepared for that, clearly. Um, so I think, you know, he did such a good job there. I was interested to see what this, you know, what this podcast would be like. Now, I will say that some of the things that I don't care for with the podcast, I think, or the, I should call it a live, a web stream or a live stream, which is really what it is. But some of the things I don't care for, I think, are more tied to the nature of this specific show for him. Because I think, You know my my guess is and i haven't watched any of it but my guess is on his sort of news videos he's probably a lot more um confident in what he's presenting and you know he probably doesn't do all the whole fact check me because a lot of this is just talking off the cuff and having conversations so you know he'll say oh i believe so and so said this and he says you know but fact check me or don't quote me on this um Because I think, again, obviously he's been burned by that in the past. And, you know, he's clearly somebody who really does his homework when he is speaking on a topic that he knows a lot about. So it's clear that this specific, you know, stream of his is much more conversational in nature and not meant to be a source of news. It's just meant to be, you know, here's where we talk about the news and our thoughts on it. So, um, I think that makes, you know, that, that's important context to have if you're listening to this this show as a podcast or if you're watching it on YouTube, understanding that it's not supposed to be a a source of information so much as just a you know, a chance to listen to people kind of break down their thoughts on the news of the day, the political news of the day.
1: Yeah, and I will say that his news episodes that are outside of the actual web webcast is uh much more uh, presented as news and you know, where he does fact check and he'll bring up, uh, you know, areas that he has fact checked and uh, how he can say, Oh, well, this is what they wrote here is wrong. And here's why and he pulls up another argue or article that kind of counters, you know, whatever article he's covering. And I think what helps with that too, what makes him a kind of successful independent journalist is the fact that he's worked for these organizations that write a lot of these articles. He's worked for, uh, Fusion, Vox, and maybe one other, uh, which, you know, these a lot of these sites kind of start off as blogging sites that kind of masquerade as journalist uh, sites. And so he knows how they work and what drives them to write what they write. And he provides a lot of context when you see a Vox article that has like some insane headline. He provides context of like why this was written or how this was written because he's worked for these companies before. He knows how they operate from the inside. So, and that, that's kind of a thing that you appreciate, because, you know, you're, you're not going to hear somebody at, you know, Fox News or CNN to kind of say, well, here's how the sausage is made. This is why we're telling you the story the way, we, you know, that we're telling it to you. Uh, so he's able to provide that kind of context to that. And and sometimes he, and, and because we know a lot of the media is definitely, you know, they, they favor the left, and he's... He's a person who feels like he's the party's. He's a man without a party, essentially. Like, you know, he feels like the Democratic Party's kind of left him behind, but he doesn't really feel like the conservative parties really represent him. So he's just kind of like stuck in the middle with no party. Um, <clears throat> he definitely kind of gets a little uh, annoying just because most of his articles is kind of. Uh, talking about well how woke the left has gotten and he, he is usually able to criticize both sides of the aisle but he definitely does focus on a lot of hypocrisy on the left more than the right uh, and i don't know if that's an argument to say well is the right more you know more hypocritical than the left i don't know uh it's almost impossible to tell these days with how the media is but um he does a lot of his content is like oh look how woke the left has gotten this is crazy and that constitutes a lot of the stuff that he will talk about and you know when he actually covers his actual you know legitimate news it is good coverage um but i think sometimes just to fill in content he has to say but haha look how woke the left got here isn't that crazy and so that can be a little tiresome and and i think he's he is a master of the youtube algorithm i will say because you can look at his views he gets insane amount of views uh, he has a very high monetization rate for a political channel um, and again that's why it tells me that he has some kind of connection with the insides of YouTube specifically but uh, he while he like has a really successful YouTube platform I think he's also kind of starting to get into... In hyperbole, quite a bit because uh, he can be hyper, very hyperbolic. Like, he's, of course, he's been saying this for a long time. It's like, oh, we're on the brink of a civil war. There's a civil war going to break out. <laughs> and I mean, he's like, he's buying like guns and ammo. He's like moving out of the city centers because he's like, it's not going to be safe when civil war breaks out. And it's almost like he's like the non conspiratorial version of Alex Jones where it's just like he gets super hyperbolic. I mean, it, at times it's more entertaining than it is anything else.
0: Yeah, I will say that, like, again, being someone that doesn't listen to a lot of, honestly, I don't I don't even watch that much news coverage. Like I I will spend four minutes scanning like headlines at the beginning of the day and then that's it. I don't I don't just because I've gotten really tired of it. And it's all hyperbole these days. But um, I will say if you listen to it, you know, if you're coming in cold and you're like, oh, this is this well-respected independent journalist. And then you're like, oh, my God. He thinks there's going to be a civil war like you could get a little panicky if you were listening to this. Like um, and I do agree with you on the point about, you know, talking about the woke left. I mean, I understand that that's it's it's a hot topic right now. Like a lot of, you know, even though I don't dip into political, you know, I do listen to interview shows like Joe Rogan or um, I listen to some, you know, podcasts that come from news organizations or you know, media like Freakonomics, things like that. So, you know, I hear of that, that talk a lot. Um, and, but you're right. There's, there's, there's probably an excessive amount of it just because again, I understand the reactions and I understand the, the need to discuss it, but it feels like it is something that like, if we don't have a lot to talk about today, let's talk about the wet, the left being super woke and, and how silly it is. And, um, and it does kind of get old. And, and maybe I'm burned out a little bit because I do listen to Joe Rogan as well. And it's also a popular topic there too. Um, but it does start to feel a little repetitive sometimes, you know.
1: Um, but well, and, and I think people could definitely see like, and I'm sure Joe Rogan's one of the top listened podcasts too in the world. So I'm sure anybody who's listened to this will have listened to a Joe Rogan podcast. Nobody in their right mind would say, oh, Joe Rogan's a conservative. Right. All right. Anybody who's listened to any level of Joe Rogan will know that. Um, but yet he's labeled as that by the media because they just don't like what he talks about. And uh, Tim is the target of that. And I think that's made him a little paranoid uh, because I do feel his hyperbole sometimes comes from paranoia. Uh, and he's actually had people who have stalked him before, like come in his house at 3 a.m. Um, wow. He's literally had the New Jersey police tell him, yeah, there's nothing you can do. You just you just need to buy a shotgun. And the <laughs> cops were like, there's not much we can do because the cops arrested the guy, they released him, and he showed back up like two hours later so at five in the morning at Tim's house. Oh my gosh. And so that's made Tim incredibly paranoid. And uh, I think in general, he's just a paranoid person because he's been attacked so many times. He's been taken out of context so many times. Um, like he can actually be quoting somebody saying something terrible and they will attribute that quote to Tim uh, just because it's a convenient attack right and that, I mean that happens all over the place but Tim is a, especially because I think he has very deep convictions in what he believes in and that's why he's like I'm not going where, where the left is going and I'm not a conservative because I believe xyz he's has very deep convictions about it and if they're ever misrepresented uh, he gets very defensive about that. And I, I think that comes in with the repetitiveness of, you know, don't fact check or fact check me. You know, don't um, <clears throat> don't quote me on that over and over and over again, because he's been this, the target of that so often. He's just gotten a little paranoid. And I think with just the crazy times we're in that <laughs> his paranoia may have increased uh, some with his like, I'm moving out of the city. I'm buying guns and. <clears throat> and he's uh, just. And I think maybe his hyperbole is based off his paranoia. Uh, it's it's interesting the Tim Pool now versus Tim Pool of twenty sixteen is a very different person. While his political stances haven't changed, I will say that how he approaches things definitely has changed.
0: That's interesting context because um, I thought it was interesting. You know, it was it was something I noted as I was listening to the to the episodes I listened to is that he very very frequently reiterates that, you know, he was an Occupy guy, that he, you know, voted for Obama in the, well, at least the first time around, Um, that, you know, he was all in for Obama, he's incredibly anti-war, like he, he, he brings this up a lot. And I think my guess was, as I was listening to this, without having that context, was that He's probably been attacked as being, you know, alt right or whatever, just because, yes. you know, he's decided that he's going to vote for Trump, um, and so, or he's had guests on that are considered, or either are conservative or are considered alt right or whatever. Um, so I think you know, because anybody these days who challenges, you know, kind of the overall media narrative, kind of gets that label slapped on them. I think so. I just assumed that was probably the case, and I think he doesn't like that being doesn't like being labeled that way because you know he clearly tries to make the point that look this is where I stand and this is why I'm voting the way I'm voting but you know I'm not conservative I'm I'm very liberal on all these things so uh I think obviously you know he talks about the fact that he's much more pro-gun ownership than he used to be and that's interesting I did not know about him being having somebody come into his house um that would probably want to That would probably change your opinion on the Second Amendment, I guess, even if you were like anti-gun before. (laughs) Um, And so especially with everything that's been going on, I know I've heard plenty of stories from people, you know, said, well, I never had a gun before, but I decided I should probably have one for, you know, home defense or whatever. Um, So I figured it was more along those lines. But that makes a whole lot more sense as to why he's moved out to the middle of nowhere and has bought all these guns. (laughs) Um, You know, that, that would be a scary experience. So. Yeah, I think it is good to have some of that context because just coming in cold um, and diving in like two weeks ago and just listening to the current episodes, I definitely was like, all right, he's got a bone to pick here. He keeps reiterating these things like there's got to be reasons for it. And I think that probably makes a lot of sense. Um, but it just does feel like a little bit of overkill when you're listening to it, you know, again, without that that additional context
1: right and i think the fact that you know he he wants everybody to know like where he is politically like and that it's very important to him and you know it's and i don't think he realizes that you know labels like fascist and the alt-right and stuff are kind of thrown lazily about these days to where i mean you have people calling ben shapiro alt-right which is you know white supremacist movement or white nationalist movement and Ben Shapiro is probably the Jewish Jew that ever Jewed <laughs> and yet they still say he's all right. And so, uh, I think Tim, I think most people don't really take those. I, th- I think there are people who just take that label as, you know, like, Oh, well somebody in the news told me that, you know, Tim pool's all right or Ben Shapiro's all right. So they must be all right. But I think most people just are tired of hearing those terms being thrown around that they probably don't take it seriously anymore. But for Tim, it's a very deep, offense to him because mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I think he does have very deep convictions and i think that's the reason why uh he was a fan of kind of the older bernie like the 2016 democratic primary bernie he wasn't very happy with bernie in the last election because he felt he got a little bit more corporate uh, uh on the democrat side mm-hmm. and that's the reason why he was such a big tulsi fan because I, I think tulsi does have like legitimate deep convictions about her beliefs and not really uh political stances are based around, like, a focus group, like a lot of uh, politicians these days have. So uh, he's a huge Tulsi fan, so he brings her up quite often. So if you're going to listen to it, expect to hear about Tulsi Gabbard at some point.
0: Yeah, well, considering how much he, like, it clearly, one of the impressions I got from him was, to your point, he's he's very strongly, like, he has real strong opinions and strong convictions, and especially when it comes to anti-war, anti-foreign wars, because he, He's well A he's mentioned it a lot and B you know he talks about multiple times about how betrayed he felt by the Obama administration like drone with all the drone attacks and and continuing the wars and not drawing back the troops like he said he were he would and he was just really betrayed by that cuz that's clearly his number 1 issue. And so I'm not surprised at all that he would be a big Tulsi fan because you know I think from what I understand of, of her that was one of her big points was you know yeah. getting getting us out of all these um, conflicts in you know in other countries so I could see that being something that like would appeal to him um but yeah I do think it it's kind of funny the there was a guest he had on um I don't remember is it Seamus Sean I don't remember anyway he um he has like a cartoon channel on YouTube I think it's called Freedom Tunes or something like that <laughs> yes 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 uh, Tim and, has appeared
1: on Freedom Tunes before <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I actually, because of course, you know, anytime there's a guest, I'll like go check out whatever they have for like five minutes. And um, and it was actually pretty entertaining. I think I, I just clicked on some of his most popular videos. And one of them was, I think, like Ben Shapiro, Family Thanksgiving, and it was hysterical. Um, So he's had some really entertaining guests on, and uh, he also had, in one of the episodes I listened to, oh gosh, I can't remember her name again. I'm so out of touch with this stuff, but she's running, I think, in... Um, baltimore Clem case yes so yeah, Kim about, yeah. Yes. Yep, and uh yep. and she had that viral political video uh, campaign ad which i actually did see at some point that's how that's how viral it went because I don't, I don't hang out around that sort of stuff but i've seen it um and uh it, you know it's really interesting but i i do think it is very clear that he's got a chip on his shoulder about being labeled alt right. but then you know like you said with the the whole joe rogan thing it's like i've seen you know i'm i'm i follow again i don't get too involved on the social side of most of the podcasts. there's one podcast where i do i am a member of like a facebook group for that podcast and it's super it's full of super very liberal people it's a very it's not a liberal podcast it's more of a comedy podcast but it's just you know the fans of it are all super liberal it's pacific northwest area so um and multiple times i've seen memes about you know alt-right podcasters, it's always clearly Joe Rogan that they're referencing, and it's it's just kind of funny <laughs> to me because I'm like, people must not listen to him who, who label him alt-right because just like with with Tim, you know, I I don't think Joe does it as much as Tim does, but, you know, he's made it clear on multiple occasions, like, hey, I, I am liberal, you know, these are the things I believe in, you know, and um, I think it, it kind of speaks to the general... uh level of discourse when these podcast hosts and or, you know, news, whatever people in the media have to constantly reiterate what their politics are, because regardless of what you say, if you have a perspective on something that doesn't align with, you know, the official line or whatever, then you're going to immediately be labeled the opposite side. So um, I get why he does it for sure. It just, you know, if you're listening daily, which his podcast is out every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, this particular show is so if you're listening to it daily which i did just to kind of you know dip my toes in and be prepared to talk about it i was just like holy moly <laughs> like i get it you said this every day for the last two weeks
1: <laughs> well and one thing to some context as well i mean his rotating guest spot that that's actually a fairly new thing uh probably within the last two, two and a half months. um because oh. it used to be, uh, he has, you know, his co-host, uh, I, I can't remember her name, I always forget it. Lydia. Um, yeah, yeah, Lydia, yeah. Something. So, he always has Lydia with him, and he used to have another co-host uh, named Adam Krigler, and uh, that was it. They, they Very rarely would they have a guest, it was just those three doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Adam was much more kind of a uh, jokey kind of, uh, you know, Tim's generally pretty serious guy, for the most part. Yeah. Uh, And so Adam was kind of the polar opposite of him and it did create a really fine balance or it it was a nice it was a nice balance to have uh, because Adam just he was full on Trump. You look the guy he looks like a stoner skateboarder guy, but he was like full on, you know, wearing the Trump beanie and stuff, which Tim refuses to wear, despite (laughs) many other political pundits have sent him MAGA beanies as as a joke. Uh, He has not worn them yet. Um, So... But apparently him and Adam had created dif- differences and Adam left uh, the company. And, uh, he started his own thing. I haven't really listened to his stuff because uh, I think, because uh, it's just him and I don't think he himself will be strong enough to hold his own podcast. But uh, so they started rotating in and out guests uh, to kind of fill in Adam's spot. And I think that's actually been uh, helpful for the podcast. I think the podcast has actually improved. Uh, not to say anything bad about Adam, but I do think uh, having these rotating guests have been uh, very... It's been a boon for the uh, podcast, personally.
0: Yeah, I think the other... I, I can't decide if he's a co-host. I think he is at this point. Is is Ian Crossland? He's had him on, like, every episode I've listened to. Um, yeah, hes
1: I think he might be Adam's replacement, but uh, I think now that, you know, they... I think the having the rotating guests has been successful enough that they've just decided to keep guests Because at, at one point, it was just to fill in Adam's spot. Gotcha. Um, so it wasn't just him and Lydia, but I think they just decided just to keep guests in.
0: Yeah, and I think technically, in the last episode I was listening to, she's she's mentioned as a producer. So I think she's also... She's a co-host, but I think she's also a producer. Um, And then Ian, I think he's just there for commentary as well. I think... I found it interesting because I, I think Ian seems to be much more traditionally liberal than... Um, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty closely aligned, I think, with where Tim's at on most things, but he definitely, um, they've gotten in, into it a few times. not like, not like arguing, arguing officially where it gets annoying and I would have tuned out immediately because I hate that, but debate. yeah, they were having a debate about something and I don't even remember what it was, but it was very much, you know, um, Ian was taking a very, very liberal stance on it and, um. And I think Tim was challenging on it, but, but I feel like, um, I don't, I haven't gotten the impression that he brings a lot to this show. I think Lydia doesn't, I mean, she, she chimes in quite frequently. Um, and you know, we'll bring up her opinion, but I think she's also being there as a producer. She's also doing a lot of stuff technically while, while they're on. And, eh. and again, I also dipped into this right at a time when they had just moved out to wherever he is in the middle of the country. And, um, so I think they've had some technical difficulties and yeah. um, I think it's it's obviously upset the balance of the show just a little bit while they've been dealing with that. So um, there's that as which well. Is,
1: which is funny because they spent so much money on the new studio or the studio that they were in previously because yeah. uh, it, it was a very nice studio and they spent a lot of money on that. And uh, then, you know, the unrest happened, uh, especially uh, it was highly affected his area. And he's like, well, I'm just going to get up and move. Where were and they? So I can only imagine the cost of that. Where
0: uh, were was they based before? Uh,
1: they were in New Jersey. I don't know specifically because Tim was just like nobody can know where I live because right. you know stalkers and whatnot. So my political enemies are going to get me. Um, so he was very uh, uh, quiet about that. I just knew it was in New Jersey area. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I, 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 he obviously has not said where he's at, other than he's out in the middle of nowhere, basically. Um, and they've had some internet problems as a result of that. In um, fact, yeah. that I was just listening to, before we started today, I was listening to the most recent episode, and I think they lost internet and like lost the stream in the middle of it. They're like, do we keep going? But what's funny about the podcast, and I think that's probably worth pointing out here, <clears throat> that the podcast, it's, it's a live stream first and it's a podcast second. So it is available if, you know, it's an RSS feed. If you have a podcatcher app that you're using, you know, you can get it. It's Timcast IRL, but it's it's clearly a live
1: stream first.
0: And so... And
1: and remember, Joe Rogan originally was that way until only maybe six to nine months ago.
0: Yes, yes. Um, And I think, you know, I mean, it makes sense to to put it on YouTube as well, even if you're, I mean, most podcasts are on YouTube, even if there's no a video component at all. Um, but I think from a, from an, if you're somebody who likes to engage with the hosts of the things that you listen to, you know, you'd probably get more out of the live stream and then the super chat and interacting with other people who are listening and interact. I don't, I haven't done that. So I don't know if the chat's completely worthless like most YouTube chats or if it's actually, you know, enjoyable to engage in, but you can at least have some interaction with the host. You don't get that if you're just listening to it as a podcast, which is what I do. So um, there is that component. I know, you know, we've discussed a few times what technically qualifies as a podcast because you tend to have a broader definition um, than I do, but... You know to me it's if it's not on my podcast catcher app or not available as an RSS feed I don't know if I qualify it as a podcast but I'll well, I'm, I'm willing I've, to expand my definition
1: <laughs> well I, I know we talked about it there's no video element required that it could be a podcast but right. again it kind of looks like Joe Rogan's one of the top podcasts in the world and it's it always started off as a video or on video platforms I think it originally started off on Justin TV maybe um, really which was the precursor to twitch Yeah. Uh, So it's always been a video podcast first. And so there's plenty of podcasts on YouTube Mm -hmm. that are just podcasts. They call it podcasts. It has the format of a podcast. And they just may have just a static image on the uh, video. But uh, they just use YouTube. Because I I think mainly because I don't know how monetization works for podcasts. I don't know if there's like a click-through rate, advertising, stuff like that. Now, I know there's endorsements where they can actually do... You know, hey, this podcast is sponsored by Tommy John Underwear or whatever. Um, so I know that there, you know, th- there's money to be made there. But on YouTube, you can get monetization that for ads that run during your podcast, and you can also get, you know, the super chats, which are, you know, YouTube does collect a portion of that money. But you know, if, for a lot of these people, that's that can be significant. There's a, a YouTuber which I will not name at this time who uh, does live streams. Um, And he probably gets at least $400, $500 per episode just on Super Chats. So, and he does them like every other day. Uh, And again, no real video element required. So I think unless you're able to get like corporate sponsorships, YouTube is, I think, a way for people to monetize and make money so they can actually continue to do what they do. Uh, and I think that's the reason why I kind of broaden that, because there is a lot of content on YouTube. And, and again, there is a lot of content that's just purely podcast related. But I think you, you have to kind of look at the gamut, because it's really going to be the people who, you know, who are trying to earn money doing it, or at least try to support themselves. I think they're going to look at YouTube first, because that's how Tim operates. It's, they're, they're looking at YouTube first, and then our, their podcast RSS feeds second.
0: Yeah, and, and that's one thing I would call out, too, with this podcast, and I, th- I don't think we mentioned it with the first one, but the true is it's, it's the same there, um, is that there are no, I mean, okay, if you're listening to it on YouTube and you don't have YouTube Red or something, you're, there's I'm assuming there's ads, but um, from a podcast perspective, there are no ads. There's no sponsorship reads. There's no, um, you know, uh, inserted ads or any of that, which is nice because, you know if you listen to podcasts regularly, ads is just a part of, I mean, it's how people monetize their podcasts. So it it happens. And I typically don't mind. I especially prefer when podcast hosts will make an effort to do their sponsorship reads in some sort of creative way that engages, you know, that where they actually kind of continue their discussion, but, you know, include the ad read. And, um, and sometimes it can actually be entertaining, but you know, one of the reasons like I stay away from most, uh, Most podcasts that are part of a network that have some exceptions, but um, like, especially the iHeart network, which is just awful um, because they'll just insert ads and they're all garbage ads. They're like, they're not targeted in any way. They have nothing to do with the content you're listening to. And half of them are ads for other garbage podcasts on that network. So it's like, it becomes incredibly frustrating, especially if you've got a podcast you've been listening to and suddenly they're now part of that network and it's like oh great if i'm going to listen to this i now have to put up with all these terrible ads. So i will say a big check mark in its favor is that you know just like with the uh, 372 pages podcast they're they're finding ways to monetize that don't require the ads whether it's the super chats or the patreon you know kind of direct support model it it does eliminate the need to listen to ads which again right. i don't begrudge any podcast for having ads right like that's that's a way to monetize. Um, and that's why I think most podcasts, to your point, even if it is just an audio podcast, they will put it on YouTube, um, because yeah. why wouldn't you, right? It's just, it's additional monetization opportunity, but,
1: um, well, and, and to kind of bring that back to Tim, mm-hmm. you know, he, in his early days, he would do, uh, I think VPN sponsorships. Uh, but otherwise that I don't think he does any sponsorships. I think super chats and YouTube ad revenue is pretty much hundred percent all of his revenue.
0: Yeah, I, I can't recall at least in the last you know in the the two weeks that I've been listening, I don't think I've heard any any ads at all. So that that kind of stood out to me at one point when I was taking notes and and thinking about you know th- this review. I was like, I was like, have I heard an ad? And I was like, I don't think I have. So um, yeah, so that's kind of cool. You know, it's 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 something that can be annoying about consuming podcasts. So um, again, don't have any problem with, with ads because I realize that's how you know. That's how people can make a living doing podcasts. But I think that the way the ads are handled or the way you monetize your podcast can be incredibly annoying or it can be engaging and part of the show. And if you, if right. you choose to go solely fan supported, which is what it appears to be doing here, um, it makes for a better listening experience.
1: Yeah. And I, I think also one of the things uh, is that the political space as a whole is very hard to monetize. Uh, Especially when it comes to automated ad revenue, like YouTube, uh, with Tim kind of being an exception, I believe. uh, Because, I mean, his podcast is fairly clean. Uh, He doesn't curse at all. Um, But a lot of times these sponsorships are the only way that these people can actually get money because they get kicked off Patreon. They'll get banned from pretty much a lot of sites, you know, so they have to use really just the direct sponsors uh, so some of them will even take some really crappy sponsors like Raid Shadow Legends or something, a mobile <laughs> game uh, sponsor, but they pay good money and it's like, hey, you know what? I can't make money any other way this way because I simply am expressing political views So, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier Tim is an ex- exception to that, but he's definitely not the rule um, and I think YouTube provides much greater opportunities for monetization in general though. So I think that's why a lot of people are just doing only YouTube because that's where the money's at I think for like more passive income.
0: Yeah and I think a lot of you know it's true of a lot of (laughs) you can always tell if a YouTube channel is considered controversial by YouTube standards because they'll have their own ads their own sponsors and it's predictably always like you know maybe some VPNs maybe some, to your point, you know, crappy mobile games. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I think I know Raycon, where this thing stands. Dollar Shave Club. Yes, uh, Raycon.
1: Tommy John.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of predictable. So, um, but, but yeah, I, I overall, I, I mean, I which, think.
1: Which uh, we would accept those sponsorships.
0: Oh, of course. <laughs> we are not, as I said, I'm not averse to ads. <laughs> um, But yeah, so I think, you know, it, it, overall as a podcast, I think it's, it's, again, these are not the types of podcasts I prefer to listen to, but, uh, I do appreciate the fact that there's no yelling. There's no, there is some hyperbole as you mentioned. Um, but in general, it's not, it's not offensive. It's not, um, it didn't frustrate me or just leave me feeling depressed like a lot of political podcasts do. And again, I haven't listened to a ton of them, but I've tried to dip my toe in the water a few times and was just like, why am I spending my time listening to this? So this one was not bad. Um, I, I think, you know, from the perspective of how I would rate this one, I, I don't hate it. Probably not going to listen to it all that frequently if I'm honest. Um, but you know, just because it's not in my wheelhouse, um. But yeah, I, I don't hate it.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't hate it either. Uh, and I think it's better in small doses. Uh, I very rarely listen to like the full live stream, uh, or go back and you know watch it after it's been posted, or uh, listen to it. Uh, but I do take in like the breakout, the the broken out segments where they you know will break out the whole live stream into like four or five videos of just the specific topics they're covering. So that way I can get just the one piece I want to hear as opposed to listening to the whole thing. So I don't hate it, but it's best in smaller doses.
0: Yeah, and to that point, it's probably better consumed on YouTube or through the YouTube app versus like a podcast app where you don't have that ability um, to... And, and, you know, some podcasts will be really meticulous about breaking out their show that way, like into chapters. And then you can, you know, the show notes will have where to go, you know, what chapters cover what... Um, this one does not do that as a podcast feed it's just the whole show um so i think this is one where you know if you're going to consume it youtube's probably the more logical way to consume it um but it is available in the podcast app if you if you really enjoy it and you want to listen to it so
1: well, i think yeah. that wraps up episode one
0: yep absolutely uh we have not picked out the epi- the uh, podcast for episode two we'll be doing that shortly but uh but yeah thanks for listening have thoughts you want to share? Send us an email at whyihateyourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website at whyihateyourpodcast.com. You can also find us at hateyourpodcast on Twitter and Instagram. Our intro, transition, and outro music is by Kevin McLeod and licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes for details.